0: Rolling Thunder often wondered out loud why psychiatrists failed to see the causal relationship between mental illness, air and water pollution, and the destruction of forests. Every traditional Indian could see this relationship, this man-mind-nature interaction. Perhaps that's why American Indians are still performing impossible agricultural and medical feats, why American Indians are still custodians of the land and uh,
1: the only criticism i have to make at this time of the good white people is that they're too apathetic but i'd like to go a little further than that that they're not concerned about their brother they don't think they're getting hurt and they're not interested either and in that it might be hurting somebody else and it's uh, hurting everyone that has to live in the cities and uh, that's part of their sickness they're too self-centered they don't even know who their neighbor is or if they get along all right and they don't they have lost respect for themselves they don't even care about themselves
2: This is Rolling Thunder, Part Two, Custodians of the Land, the second of an eight-part series on the Shoshone Medicine Man, Healer, and Activist.
3: (laughs)
4: come to visit us. If they say they can't control their thinking, I can tell you that's a bunch of baloney. And as a mind is like a muscle. And if you work it in a certain way, it becomes that way. If you think in a certain way, it comes into being. And if you think about the good things and think of yourself in a good way, and if you don't have a guilty conscience, if you haven't been part of that other thing I was just talking about, well, you shouldn't have a guilty conscience. You don't have to be ashamed whatever race you are. And we don't like people come up and misrepresent themselves. I can tell you that right now. Because we don't have anything to hide. And we don't like anybody else to be evasive. If they got something to hide, well, then they've got a different trip uh, they might be thinking about trouble or making trouble. Well, that's not our trip. We don't allow no guns, no violence. Like I say, we enforce it very strictly. And anybody who would be in that kind of business of making trouble, they're just out of place. They become unpopular. And they're on their way even in the middle of the night. There's been f- some like that because it's all kind. Let's be factual. All people are not the same, that's somebody else's propaganda. People are supposed to be the same, that's true, and supposed to be the same in the spirit, but it's not that way and by somebody else's choice, not ours. Someday it'll be that way, but it's not that way at this time, there's the evil forces working through some people and as uh, good forces have worked through others. And I know there's a war on in the spirit world that's greater than any war that they can conjure up on this earth at this time. And this war is between the good and the evil forces. Many Indians died before their time, They're killed off and murdered before that time, by the hundreds of thousands. Now they're coming back, and the prophecy was some you might not be able to recognize, or they would look different. In other words, reincarnated. And we've met many, and we're the ones to know. And there are others that also died before their time of violence. But sometimes they might have brought on themselves. And some of the Nazis and different ones that died before their time. They're also back. And they also are reincarnated. And so this war goes on in the spiritual world for the control of the minds of the people. And also some greedy ones that controlled by the evil forces of greed, like in this country, very badly infested with it. And so. The war goes on for the control of all people, and they don't care what race or who you are. There is better respect for no one. And the people that accept them also have no respect.
5: Yeah.
0: my first lesson would be to see the destruction of pinyon juniper forests on Shoshone land. During the question-and-answer period after his lecture at Council Grove, Rolling Thunder had told us about the chaining of forest lands. The Bureau of Land Management, under pressure from wealthy ranchers, was knocking down thousands of acres of trees on Indian treaty territory and public domain to convert the forests into grazing land. To Rolling Thunder, it was man's destruction of his own environment. In a few years, it's all going to wash, and there'll be no grass or sagebrush or trees or anything. It'll be a dust bowl. For the sake of a few blades of grass for a few years, they are willing to come into a desert country and destroy the trees that are in the hills, pinion trees that the Indians have depended on for food for thousands of years. To Rolling Thunder, this was a mental health issue, Already, I had a sense of his understanding. I felt my ultimate task would be to relate that understanding to a style of living. Rolling Thunder often wondered out loud why psychiatrists failed to see the causal relationship between mental illness, air and water pollution, and the destruction of forests. Every traditional Indian could see this relationship, this man-mind-nature interaction. Perhaps that's why American Indians are still performing impossible agricultural and medical feats, why American Indians are still custodians of the land. The four of us drove to the campsite and shared a meal in the sunset. I brought up the pinion tree chaining. Oscar Johnny says they did some chaining south of here just a few days ago. Rolling Thunder responded, I had a feeling that was going to happen, "'Richard Clemmer was in the Bureau of Land Management office several times. "'They promised to let him know as soon as the next chaining was scheduled. "'I know,' I said. "'Richard got a card in the mail from the Bureau of Land Management yesterday "'telling him that nothing was happening but that they would keep in touch. "'I saw the card myself.' "'They probably wrote that just as the chaining was finished,' "'Rolling Thunder said. "'They're pretty sneaky people. "'They know what they're doing is wrong. "'That's why they have to lie.' They can't afford to let anybody see their destruction, not an anthropology student, a land management student, or anybody else. Of course, they put out their own propaganda on it, and they probably don't want anyone to pick up any conflicting facts. Well, next time they do it, we'll be right there with them, and with cameras. The following day, Anne and Richard returned from a Shoshone festival in Ruby Valley, and I told them what Rolling Thunder had said about the chaining. They knew the chaining had occurred because they had talked with Oscar Johnny in Ruby Valley. Richard wondered how we were to record the next episode. He doubted that the Bureau of Land Management would ever give advance warning. Another several hundred acres were sure to be attacked within the next week or two. It was time for the first frost, the time when, for centuries, the cones have opened on the trees and yielded their life-sustaining food. It was the time the Bureau of Land Management usually chose for the heaviest destruction of the forests. Weeks passed, and we heard nothing about any chaining projects. One day in early November, in Goshute country, south of Ely, in the scenic Weaver Creek area near Sacramento Pass, the destruction began again, and we were there with our cameras. In mid-September, I had gone with Anne and Richard to spend a few weeks back in Topeka, Kansas. While I worked at the Menninger Foundation, Anne and Richard made a trip to Hopi land and back. In October, we drove back to Carlin. There were no reports of chaining while we were gone, but we knew that if more land was to be cleared this year, it would have to be done soon. This was the season when, years ago, whole Shoshone clans would be out in the forests in temporary villages for the pinion nut harvest. We waited until the end of October, wondering whether the bulldozers and chains were at work without our knowing it. On the 1st of November, Richard took off in his dirty white Ford to scout the state if necessary. If any chaining was being done, he wanted to find it. He was gone for several days. Anne and I began to worry. We were safe in our rooms, but the thought of Richard lost out of gas or marooned in the hills on these freezing nights was an uncomfortable one. He's okay, Rolling Thunder told us. I have a feeling he's about on to something. Richard returned with urgent news. They were at work, hundreds of acres down south. The trees were going fast. We would have to hurry. Richard himself had been fine, sleeping in his car at night and spending the daylight hours searching. I was about 200 miles from Carlin and about to give up when I thought I heard the caterpillar tractors far away up in the hills. I drove in as close as I could and listened again, "'It was a chaining crew on the other side of the hill. "'I walked an hour through the trees, and I found them, 3 tractors pulling a gigantic anchor chain. "'Those trees are being ripped up at an incredible speed. "'Richard pinpointed the area on Rolling Thunder's maps "'and argued that we leave as soon as possible. "'Early the next morning, we packed sandwiches "'and picked up Rolling Thunder. "'The Danish woman, who had extended her visit in Carlin, "'joined us with her camera.' "'There were five of us and five cameras. "'Rolling Thunder had an eight-millimeter movie camera, "'and he examined it several times, "'hoping, I suppose, that he would be able to make it perform. "'It was afternoon by the time Richard drove up into the hills "'to the point he'd reached the day before. "'We loaded our cameras and started for the sound of the tractors. "'Richard thought they sounded much farther away now. "'We walked a long way, but the sound stayed in the distance ahead. "'They were working away from us.' We tried to increase our speed, but the going was difficult because we had to walk through felled and shattered trees. The pungent pine odors and the snapping sound of the trees being ripped from the ground reached us from the valley below. We broke into a run and soon found ourselves behind the chain, stumbling over the ripped trees, struggling to keep up and pointing our cameras like weapons. It was an incredible scene. Pinion trees were falling by the hundreds. Dust and debris flew into our faces, and our camera lenses had to be dusted off before every shot. The roar of the engines and the snapping and cracking of the trees made so much noise that we could not talk to each other. All we could do was to keep as close as possible to the chain and try to capture the tragedy all around us. Suddenly the tractors stopped, and the silence was startling. We were all covered with dust, chunks of dirt, and splinters of wood. When we looked back, there were dead, sprawling, twisted trees as far as we could see. The huge chain had come to rest against the trunks of those trees next to go. I wondered whether in the consciousness of these trees there was a sense of bewilderment or terror. The pinyon trees were not as majestic as the redwoods, but they had grace and beauty. To the Shoshone Indians, they offered more nutrition per acre than anything else, plant or animal, that could be raised in this area. "'Look at these trees,' Rolling Thunder said. "'Some of the elders here are over 500 years old.' "'One of the tractor operators stepped down from his bulldozer "'and crawled over the chain. "'The chaining was over for the day. "'We talked with him for a moment and then left. "'Our conversation had been friendly, "'and the operator's curiosity about us "'had given us a chance to ask about their schedule. "'We wanted to know how many days more they would be chaining "'and where they would be going next.' "'They were a lot nicer than I expected,' someone said. "'Well, they try to be friendly,' Rolling Thunder replied. "'They're just working people trying to make a living. "'You can't blame them too much because they don't know what they're doing. "'They got a contract, and they're doing their job. "'They have no idea about the long-range implications of this destruction. "'No idea whatsoever. "'The guilt is with the Bureau of Land Management and the government. "'The blame belongs up there with the power and the greed.' The contractors needed two more days to clear this area, so we planned to come back. This would mean staying overnight and buying meals. Funds were a problem. Rolling Thunder's brakeman's salary supported his family as well as his work. I had my salary from the Menninger Foundation, but I was providing my travel expenses. Anne and Richard were coming to the end of the savings set aside for Richard's thesis. Rolling Thunder remarked how absurd it was that people should have to scrape for nickels and dimes to sustain them through the effort to save trees from millionaire ranchers. Some of our medicine people could work on another level and probably block this chaining of the trees, but the problem would still be there, all the ignorance and all the greed, or we would fall into a great spiritual contest. It is most reasonable for us to work in a very practical way on a human level. I just... "'Flashed on the picture of Rolling Thunder standing up there on that hill, "'holding his little eight-millimeter camera, "'telling that cat driver we were a camera club from way over in the city. "'He must have thought Rolling Thunder was the president, with feathers in his hat. "'In the morning we checked out and had breakfast and drove back over Sacramento Pass. "'It was midday by the time we reached the tractors. "'The men stopped and offered to let someone ride to take pictures.' Richard climbed on with Rolling Thunder's movie camera, but the caterpillar tractor bounced and vibrated so that Richard couldn't even hold the camera to his face, much less keep it steady. Richard asked the operator to stop, and when the tractor started again, we tried to follow, stopping now and again to reload and then racing to keep up. The uprooting was done in a series of rows, and the caterpillars turned again and again, working back and forth down the side of the hill across a narrow valley and up the next hill. At times we stood among trees that were about to be uprooted to get shots of the approaching chain. It was dangerous business. It was difficult to keep from tripping over fallen limbs and branches or slipping in patches of snow. There were three tractors about 50 yards apart and the drivers could not see us when we were between them. There was always the chance of getting crushed or spiked by the chain. Soon the sun started getting low and the tractors kept going around the side of a hill and down into another valley. We ran after them but soon gave up, exhausted. Rolling Thunder gathered some Indian tea and other herbs, tied them all into a bundle, and walked down to the foot of the hill to deposit the bundle near the road. Then he walked back up the hill to where we were resting. They've taken everything, he said. Killed every bit of life here. Trees, Indian tea, sacred herbs, everything. He began to walk, and we followed. We were not going in the direction of the car, we were just walking. He picked up a few plants as we went along and then stopped to let us take pictures of him standing beside a felled tree whose roots reached over his head. He stood motionless by the dying tree for a few moments, then filled his pipe and lit it. The four of us stood quietly. He made a simple sacrifice and talked in a quiet way to the Great Spirit. The late evening air was crisp and chilling. The setting sun colored the clouds. The Great Spirit was in the clouds, we had been told, and also in the trees the nuts the indian tea the air in our lungs and the dirt on our faces the meaning of rolling thunder's prayer was that the government of the united states was grotesque and overbearing and that with all its dangerously powerful bureaus it was causing disharmony and destruction all over the planet by manipulation by meddling in the affairs of the indians the affairs of other americans the affairs of vietnamese and cambodians and the affairs of the pinion trees. To him the matter was spiritual and not political. He spoke in a gentle manner. He asked that this pinion tree chaining be seen by those who needed most to see it, as a symbol of the misuse of power. He asked that the chaining be stopped, that the trees be allowed to grow again wherever they had been, and that their safe return symbolized the sovereign right of all species, of all kingdoms, live in their own nature. Then he spoke to the trees as if he felt a need to say some words to them. I looked at him against the background of the thousands of dying trees that covered the hills behind. He had not come only to engage in a futile struggle against the destruction. He had come to be with the trees, and now his thoughts were with them. His voice became muted, and I could perceive a tightness in his throat. He spoke slowly, almost stuttering. And we ask that the trees be allowed to return, to grow again in this place where they belong, and that until that day, there be peace presiding over this land. We ask that the shock of this tragedy, that this confusion and fear, his voice trailed off, he began to scan the hills on either side, but then he looked into the sky and was stone still. I could hear him breathing. This was too painful a sight for a custodian of the land. <laughs> Protest could be made to the U.S. government on behalf of the trees and the people, the Rolling Thunder, the Shoshone Nation, the Goshutes, the Paiutes, and other tribes. This had been done before, but it could be done again. The petition would ask that the trees be allowed to grow on Indian treaty territory, claiming that forests were more valuable to nature than fattening the ranchers' cattle, and that cleared hills would wash away in time and the land become useless even for grazing. The Indians could say that the pine nuts were an important food source of Native American people who were otherwise joining the welfare lists. Those forests provided more nutrition per acre than the cattle, which would hardly be available to most Indians anyway. An additional legal approach would be for Rolling Thunder's friends, the committee people, and other U.S. citizens to make a formal protest. It could be pointed out that if this land is public domain, as the U.S. government calls it, Its defacement for the exclusive commercial benefit of private ranching interests was a questionable use of taxpayers' money. It was obvious that protest alone would not save the trees. There were other possibilities, such as a court injunction against the chaining, but that would take time. The first order of business, as Rolling Thunder saw it, was to begin the process of informing people. Few people, even in Nevada, knew about the chaining although nearly everyone was adversely affected by it. Rolling Thunder felt that a meeting in Ely with local traditional Indians and the committee people from San Francisco would be the best beginning. The local paper would show up, and we could get out a mailing that would begin the information process. Rolling Thunder hoped that eventually many white people would help and thus be helped themselves. This was Rolling Thunder's way wherever possible to enlist the support of non-Indians in eliminating the unjust treatment of the Indian. In turn, the white man would be helping himself where he needed help in learning about himself and becoming wise about the earth and its inhabitants and how everything works together. This kind of learning process would contain quite a few surprising lessons for white students.
3: What do you think can be done about these problems of pollution and ill health and low energy in our cities now?
1: There have been many studies made, many studies made, have proven that uh, it's not just one or two things they put in the water, but it's uh, numbers uh, up to about uh, 25 or 30 different chemicals sometimes they put in the water. And uh, it's... uh, have been studies, environmental studies, made already, and they have scientifically proved it, that these things are harmful, that many of them cause cancer. And uh, as to what could be done about it, now it's getting a little out of my area, because the prophecies are that it's not up to the Indian. It's up to the good white people, and that's why I try to... Uh, Speaking with these people last night, and different people, I've tried to. One of the things is jar them awake to get them to wake up and uh, and start doing something, because they tell me that is I'm an Indian. I've never voted in my life in a, uh, in a, uh, other people's business, and uh, we have our own. But the thing is that uh, that. Uh, so what can be done is, uh, I mean, up to the like our prophecies, that it's up to the good white people to correct what the bad ones have done, which is entirely proper. Uh, and uh, I'm certain that there's enough good white people left to do that. If they weren't so apathetic and, uh, and uh, sit around and I guess some are too busy meditating, or some are too busy making a million dollars, or uh, whatever it is, and they don't think about, they don't think it's hurting them because they don't see it till it breaks out, or uh, uh, they die, or go crazy, whatever it is. So, they tell me that they live in a democracy. We Indians have never seen it. We don't know anything about that democracy they talk about. We've never been a part of it. Uh, the fact that a few of us allowed to vote uh, when we're at less than uh, one half of one percent of the population, and uh, all that—it's a great big joke, uh, a kind of a gruesome joke. But uh, so they could they could draft us in taxes, like uh, everybody else. That's all it that amounted to and uh, they're not going to pay any attention to that few of us, anyway. So that uh, it is, it is up to the good white people to correct what their chiefs, our politicians, and their government is doing. And it's a white man's government, it always has been, and it is. We had nothing to do with that whatever except what they forced on top of us and so it is up to the good white people which i found there are many of them and uh, the only criticism i have to make at this time of the good white people is that they're too apathetic but i'd like to go a little further than that that they're not concerned about their brother they don't think they're getting hurt and they're not interested either, and then it might be hurting somebody else, and it's uh, hurting everyone that has to live in the cities, and uh, that's part of their sickness. They're too self-centered. They don't even know who their neighbor is, or if they get along all right, and they don't- they have lost respect for themselves. They don't even care about themselves. they would sit down, and they would probably be, some of them be writing letters to the representatives. And anybody can do that that can afford the price of a stamp. And they'd, uh, and uh, I've had them tell me themselves that a handwritten letter from, and I've seen it, that from any white person that they would uh, at least get a reply, or that they would at least look into it. Now, with Indians, this, in the old days, there used to be uh, thousands of them make a petition and send up there, and we sometimes get a reply of maybe two or three lines that it's being looked into or referred to the Bureau of Indian Affairs where it might have started from, or more likely, it was put in a waste basket, and thousands of people sign their name, but with a white person. We've seen that one person could write a letter and something sometimes could get done, and so whether they want to admit it or not, it's a racist government, and that's the way it was designed and set up and still is. We have to be factual. I don't see that as a, as a, even as a criticism, that part. I'm saying it as a fact, the way it is, and it's not what they want to lie about it or deny it. They've demonstrated it to us for 200 years now, and it still is. And uh, we don't mind that. That is, we don't even resent that at all. We're not asking them for anything except to keep their treaties with our governments and tribes. in other words, what they should do is clean up their own before they tell anybody else how to live it all. And uh, they could start by cleaning up their thinking, but they can't clean up their thinking until they clean up their pollution. And to clean up their pollution, they have to have somebody with a clear mind to do it for them. And I'd say it's going to have to be a powerful person it's going to have to be a white person, a good white person, that has clear, clear mind and clear thinking and highly spiritual before they can think in that right direction to do it. And uh, I'd say uh, there is such a person. But the only thing is going to have to watch out if they don't assassinate him or uh, something like that because uh, uh, they... Uh, seem to be no demand for those people in uh, Washington this time, and uh, something seems to happen to them uh, once they get too honest. And uh, our chief and medicine people were and still are honest. I'm not talking about the government appointables. I'm talking about uh, what we call traditionals. (laughs) And uh, I don't want to go any further and uh, what I refer to as, you, as uh, your politics, because uh, certainly uh, uh, I don't envy in any way uh, any part of it at this time that we don't want to be included, and uh, I've heard uh, many of my white friends say this time they didn't uh, know who to vote for, that uh, they didn't know whether they wanted to grow peanuts, or that uh, uh, one man was uh, saying that uh, uh, he didn't know they... Uh, one, oh, one man was asking the questions, and the other didn't know how to answer. I heard uh, that about a debate they're supposed to be having. And so that's get, getting pretty bad. It sounds like some of those old-time Indian agents that to sit out on a reservation, you know. And now they're picking those guys in Washington. So I don't know. I hope they don't wipe out your uh, radio license or anything like that, you know, because of this kind of talk. Maybe you ought to strike this part out. But uh, I don't think it's really a free country. I don't think it really is. And they can bring pressures on you, even if they don't assassinate you, just like they've been doing all the time on the Indian. And they can do that to you too, and you might ought to realize that it uh and i know too these tapes you can cut out whatever part you don't want in there it
2: we do criticize the government uh, <coughs> on our on our station uh, many times all the time uh, uh but uh, if you wish i can i can strike this out if you, if uh you. not for my
1: part because no. i'm not afraid of
2: okay we are <laughs> either uh,
1: i'm just afraid that they, uh, 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 They might assassinate me, but I'm not afraid of that. I only got one time to die. They've been killing lots of Indians all the time anyway, and uh, we're kind of used to it. But the thing is, too, I was uh, only afraid they might uh, take away your radio license. I've I've heard of such a thing, you know.
2: We we fight them all the time, and uh, we've been around for uh, 30 years. (laughs) Thirty was it? 1949. It started in Berkeley. In Berkeley, and oh. uh, we've been fighting a long time, and we still got our license, and we're getting bigger and bigger. So well, that's
1: uh, good. I'm glad to hear that, and uh, so it's uh, nice to see some white people now that here I've been ranting about white people being apathetic, and bowing down on their knees and accepting. Uh, anything they want to dump in their food and water, and uh, the false propaganda and lies they're fed about the Indians, and uh, different things that the white people generally been doing that. But now, I no sooner make a statement like that, and somebody comes along, you know, there's oh, a couple of uh, white people got some guts, and uh, willing to fight fight these things, and these evils that are going to destroy all of us. It's not correct. Uh, you know well, that makes it it shows that there's still life even here in los angeles yes, right. and uh, and uh, so it's not hope- all that hopeless really if if good people could all get together that believe in great spiritual life, and that all people have a right to live and not live in a state of consciousness where they uh, walk around like zombies, a minute and a half dead, and if uh, once uh, these kind of people would get together, and uh, I think they could uh, wake up these here uh, supposed to be representatives, uh, congressmen, senators, and different ones that uh, make these uh, stupid laws, and that they have to live under Instead of with. And uh, see, the reason uh, I guess we're a little paranoid about these types of laws, you know, that now affecting the people generally, uh, especially in the cities, is because we've been under those for a long, long time.
3: (laughs)
0: since come to know some part of the indian prophecy that is preserved chiefly by the hopi people and maintained by traditional indian spokesmen everywhere the currently significant part of those prophecies pertains to an approaching transition that is often called the day of purification this prophecy coincides with the claims of ecologists and scientists who believe that imbalance in nature has passed the point of no return. Yet the traditional Indian does not await some kind of ecological doomsday. Instead, he awaits the moment of climax with hopeful anticipation. During our lunch, Rolling Thunder said, When you have pollution in one place, it spreads all over. It spreads just as arthritis or cancer spreads in the body. The earth is sick now because the earth is being mistreated. And some of the problems that may occur, some of the natural disasters that might happen in the near future, are only the natural readjustments that have to take place to throw off sickness. A lot of things are on this land that don't belong here. they are foreign objects like viruses or germs. Now, we may not recognize the fact when it happens, but a lot of the things that are going to happen in the future will really be the Earth's attempt to throw off some of these sicknesses. This is really going to be like fever or like vomiting, what you might call physiological adjustment. It's very important for people to realize this. The earth is a living organism, the body of a higher individual who has a will and wants to be well, who is at times less healthy or more healthy physically and mentally. People should treat their own bodies with respect. It's the same thing with the earth. Too many people don't know that when they harm the earth, they harm themselves nor do they realize that when they harm themselves, they harm the earth. Some of these people, interested in ecology, want to protect the earth, and yet they'll cram anything into their mouths just for tripping or for freaking out, even using some of our sacred agents. Some of these things I call helpers, and they are very good if they're taken very, very seriously. But they have to be used in the right way, otherwise they'll be useless and harmful, and most people don't know about these things. All these things have to be understood. It's not very easy for you people to understand these things because understanding is not knowing the kind of facts that your books and teachers talk about. I can tell you that understanding begins with love and respect. It begins with respect for the Great Spirit. And the Great Spirit is the life that is in all things, all the creatures and the plants and even the rocks and the minerals. All things, and I mean all things, have their own will and their own way and their own purpose. This is what is to be respected. Such respect is not a feeling or an attitude only. It's a way of life. Such respect means that we never stop realizing and never neglect to carry out our obligation to ourselves and our environment.
4: First thing the little Indian child learned in account, this is close. something you might have missed when you were young, unless you had a teacher that knew something about that. And the old ones are the ones that teach and guide through legends, and many of which have much wisdom. Uh, which are always teaching about respect for the nature, respect for the elements, and the sun, and the winds, and the stars, respect for the animals and for the birds, and then respect for each other, which should come naturally. And so it's a way of life where no one lays a trip on anyone else, and where the rights of the individual are respected, and you're respected as a man or as a woman. Now, I want to tell you something about man. Might, some of us that talk here tonight might mention about our warriors. So I want to tell you what it means to be a warrior in the Indian way, and it's nothing dishonorable at all. And to be a warrior means a man who can stand on his own feet and provide for his family, or take a bullet in the back if necessary so the others might live. And there's been many Indians did just that, and doing it today, so that the rest of the people might live, and the women and children especially. And so that's what it means to be a warrior. It don't mean like you have to go into somebody else's country and destroy their country over across the ocean. It don't mean that you have to destroy the native people or their way of life. That's not a warrior. That's something else. <laughs>
2: Have heard rolling thunder part two custodians of the land the second of an eight-part program on the shoshone medicine man healer and activist selections from the book rolling thunder by doug boyd were read by mitchell hardin music by t nightwalker d osage and the white skunk sisters the oglala Sioux singers w horncloud ben sitting up and frank afraid of horses The big fields villagers and hopi singers from second mesa from the everest album authentic music of an american indian technical and production assistance by margaret fowler amanda folger and mitchell harding this program was produced by roy e tuckman for kpfk fm pacifica radio in los angeles